0: Help us, O Lord, to live with your cross at the center of our lives. Amen. Amen. If someone asked you to define who God is, what would you say? As our culture becomes more and more secular, this is not a hypothetical question. It's a question that we as people of faith ought to have considered. Who do we say that God is? Most responses to that question are rooted in the sense that God is almighty, that God is powerful in a way that we are not. So we might say that God is unlimited, whereas we are finite, or that God can control or do anything while we are so limited in our abilities, or that God is all-knowing, and we are ignorant of most things. Or God is eternal, and we are running out of time. And when we talk about well, what sorts of things has God done, generally power is rooted in some very big things, such as God is the creator of all that is. Or God is the one who separated the waters of the Red Sea. Or God shows up with booming thunder and flaming fire on mountaintops where God watches over all of us. But this week's Colossus gives us a different way of thinking of God's power. The prayer opens with, O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Mercy and pity. Certainly a different way of thinking about power. At St. Luke's, our, our identity statement begins with an invitation to come and see the difference that Christ makes. A different way of viewing power is probably a holier and better way. Mercy and pity, these are load bearing words when it comes to theology, and they carry so many ideas that connect so many different topics. But what it boils down to is that God's power is most clearly and fully seen. In redeeming love and compassion and so God's power is not what we so often think of when we think of powerful people power in human terms is usually about being able to make other people do what we want them to or being strong enough to push others or nature around or having the resources to do whatever we wish but God's power is seen in love and compassion it's not power over someone it's power with and power for god's power is that god sees our brokenness and responds not by being disappointed with us but rather has compassion and from the abundance of divine love heals us not because we've earned it or deserved it but because this is what love does love works to make all things well but this is a very different kind of power than we in than what we encounter in the world. When we see this sort of power, we might not even recognize it as being powerful. We might think that it's weakness, vulnerability, softness. We might say, yeah, that sounds nice. But that kind of power doesn't get anything done. That kind of power doesn't work out there in an everyone-for-themselves world. And yet I think most of us would recognize that we spend too much of our lives pursuing power of one form or another and not as much time as we would like building loving relationships. We recognize that what our society needs in this moment is not more people who are after power, but more people pursuing love. So even though we might be tempted to dismiss mercy and pity as signs of weakness instead of seeing it as power, intuitively, we all know that there's got to be a better way. And as St. Paul puts it in a passage that we've probably heard at a wedding, the most excellent way is that of love. And the reason why it is so important for us to know that God's power is seen in mercy and pity is that that frames how we think about God how we pray to God, and what it means for us who are striving to become a church that follows, looks, and acts like Jesus. Because if we think that God's power is all about might, strength, and force, well, then we might end up with a twisted view of God. We'll start to see God as someone who's capable of taking care of all of our problems, like dementia or cancer in our loved ones, a war in Ukraine, greed on Wall Street, stinginess in our hearts, addiction or depression in our friends. And if God's power is about being able to fix those problems, but the problems continue, then we're stuck with one of three bad conclusions. One would be that God knows about our problems, but chooses to let us continue suffering, either because God is not as nice as we thought, or God has decided that we don't deserve any help. Secondly, we might think that God doesn't know about our problems because God is off just somewhere else doing something else. Or three, that God can't actually do anything about suffering, which would mean that there is something out there more everlasting and enduring than God, which would mean we really shouldn't call God, God anymore. And these three deficient conclusions are the foundation for how a lot of people relate to God. Some people think of God as a demanding, punishing, judgmental deity who is just never satisfied with us, always demanding that good behavior comes before any blessings. Others, generally those who have experienced a deep sort of trauma or loss, might see God as capricious and nasty, who would not do very well on a performance review the job of being in charge of all things. And the most common argument against belief in God is that, well, if God is real, why is there so much suffering? A misunderstanding of what power is all about leads to antipathy, apathy, or atheism. And it's not just those outside the church who see God through the lens of one of these A words antipathy, apathy, or atheism. The church has become infected with a sort of blindness to what God is up to. We've grown too focused on metrics to measure worldly power, like attendance, budget, endowment size. We talk about the benefits of faith, what we get out of church, as if God were here to serve our needs. We compartmentalize God to being in the realm of the spiritual but in our modern and scientific world there's not very much left for the spiritual and so we segregate god out of our politics economics and ethics we say that we want jesus to make a difference at our death while largely ignoring the difference that christ makes in our lives we have little if any expectations that god is actually up to anything in the world Perhaps because that makes us more comfortable with the idea that God does not expect anything out of us. And so having a flawed view of what power is about leads to an incomplete picture of God, leaving us with an impoverished faith. But if mercy and pity, if love and compassion are the chief ways to understand what power is all about, then we are able to embrace and be embraced by the difference that Christ makes. And the place that we see this power, that truly is almighty, is in the cross of Jesus. Saint Paul is writing to a Philippian church that has some conflict and some questions. And he urges them to let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, stop trying to be right, or correct, or in charge but have the same mind in you that led Jesus to the cross, a mind that is fixed on love, mercy, and pity. In the passage we heard from Philippians, St. Paul is quoting from what we believe is an early hymn or a creed of the church, perhaps the earliest and oldest piece of Christian writing that exists. And this hymn talks about the power of the cross in the same way that the collect does. It's not power like the world's power. It's not power to be exploited and used over others. Rather, it's power to pursue love. And so Jesus, as the hymn tells us, empties himself, creating space for God to act in him. But so many of us live very full lives. Our to-do lists runneth over. Our our attention is occupied by so many things. We live in a culture in which we are accountable for every moment. You know, a lot of people reported feeling upset at themselves at the beginning of the pandemic because they did not embark on some major self-improvement effort. Remember back when we were all quarantined? A lot of people thought that they should use that time to organize their closets, or learn a new language, or read a bunch of books, or take up some new and interesting hobby. How crazy we are. Think about people that lived during the Black Death and the plague. Were they worried about self-actualization? No, they were trying to survive but we overfocus on making the most of every opportunity, of always being effective, of always showing progress and growth, with the result that there is little, if any, space for the Spirit to work in us, little time for us to show mercy and pity. When's the last time we made any space in our calendar to listen to God's voice? When's the last time that we were awake and did not touch our phone for one hour. When is the last time we did not worry about being productive but just focused on being? I'll be honest and, and tell you all that since I've come back from sabbatical I've been going about 100 miles an hour and that's been on the slow days. So this past week, sensing this, I took an hour, I closed my office door, turned off the lights, lit a candle and some incense and just gave my self the space to think and listen was that a productive hour not at all in terms of worldly power but it was probably the best thing i did all week how does modern life prevent us from making space for god and as we're launching our annual stewardship campaign which is the church way of saying fundraising It's also a time for us to think about how we make space in our budgets for God and the church. As you review those stewardship materials which are on their way to you in the mail, when you get that pledge card, consider it an invitation to make space in your finances for God to do something amazing, both in terms of our relationship to money, but also in terms of the thriving of this beloved community of St. Luke's. So often when we think about power, power is seen as taking up space. The most powerful people have the biggest offices, the biggest bank accounts, the biggest entourage, the biggest houses, the biggest seats up in first class. But Jesus shows us that true power, that love, mercy, and pity are not about taking up space, but rather making room for others. And in that space where Jesus emptied himself, the love of the Father and the grace of the Spirit filled him with a love that led to the cross, the place where we see God's love, mercy, and pity. On the cross, we see the true might of weakness, the true force of vulnerability, the true strength of love. The result being when we finally get to that day on which we can say that all has been made well, every knee will bend in heaven and earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God wants nothing more than to fill you with this sense that you have been seen, forgiven, and loved. The cross of Jesus shows us that God is not disappointed with us. God is not waiting for us to clean up our act. Instead, God meets our mistakes with mercy and our suffering with pity. We might not be given a solution to get rid of all of our problems. But the fact of the matter is, even if all of our problems vanished this afternoon, we would probably have a whole boatload more by tomorrow morning. And so God instead gives us a love that is more everlasting than death, deeper than grief, more beautiful than sin. And this is the good news that Jesus shows us from the cross, that God has met our brokenness with perfect pers- mercy and pity, which we call love. And with that love at the core of our identity and purpose, our lives become full of the blessed bountiful and beautiful difference that Christ makes.